to Next in Ed. I'm Joe. And I'm Julie. Julie, today we have a guest that I am very excited about. Uh, Not just to have the chance to talk to her, but actually be in the studio with her today. We have Commissioner Masiria Ludgood from Mobile County. Welcome to the studio. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us today. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, I believe you've had some uh, work with her in the past. Absolutely, and I hope that we'll have the chance to talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. as we move along in in today's conversation. So, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit of your background and how there's so many neat things that you've done, and and I think our listeners would really enjoy the chance to to listen to some of those stories uh, that eventually led to you being a county commissioner for for Mobile County. Hmm. So... I'm a native of Mobile, grew up in Mobile. I was born at um, St. Martin de Porres Hospital, which is now Allen Memorial. Right. It's a a senior citizen's facility. And at that time, it was the maternity hospital for black women. I was born in 1953. And um, my parents uh, got married in 1952, and my mother was still teaching in Clark County. But my dad was working down here in Belgian Isle what was going to be our family home. So from 1953 until 1958, we would ride a train from on Sunday afternoons from Mobile to Jackson, Alabama, and then on Friday afternoon get on the train and come back to Mobile where my dad was. And I had a, I have a, a younger brother, who, a brother who's two years younger than I, and that was the trip we made. My mother was teaching at Harper High School. And uh, my brother and I were with an aunt, my dad's sister. My mother, uh, my mother had a one room. She was one of old school teachers, so she had rented a room in a boarding house, and that's where she was, which was near the school there in Jackson, where she was teaching. And my brother and I were with my aunt, who were about fifteen, maybe fifteen miles away, but it's fifteen country miles. Mm-hmm. So that was that was. <laughs> A distance, and she would bring us in every Friday afternoon. We'd get on that train. I have no recollection of the train. I just know we rode that train. Uh, fast forward to um, 1958. My mom got a job here in Mobile County at Roselle High School, and uh, I did my first year, first grade at Roselle. Roselle had first to the twelfth grade, and um, she was there, and then she went out on maternity leave, and when she went back, she was at Blunt. By this time, I was now a third grader at Leona B. Warren. My first grade teacher, Mrs. Shepard, had first and second in her room. So I did the first grade work and the second grade work. So she promoted me from first grade to third grade. So I got to Leona B. Warren as a third grader, and it was right there in my neighborhood in Crichton. I grew up in Crichton. I went from Leona B. Warren to Booker T. Washington for for what was then junior high school, 7th, 8th, and 9th. And then um, my 10th grade year, they opened what was originally called Central Annex. And then it later became Tolmanville High School. And I graduated from Tolmanville in 1970 and went on to the University of Alabama, which was my first integrated academic experience. Right. When I I went to the university. And... um, Y'all want to just kind of jump right in? Oh, well, well, I do want to say that uh, that that's fascinating. I did not expect for the background in education um, from your family. So that's really, you know, an interesting story 
because we always talk about what's next in Ed, but also where it has come from, mm -hmm. where it has come from, from a small one-house room, from, from segregated schools to your first integrated experience being in college in 1970. I, I even remember in 1962 when they took, when they started paying black teachers and white teachers on the same pay scale. That didn't happen until 1962. Wow. So when my mother's early teaching days, she was on a, a different pay scale. And so, uh, but I guess what that says is that I lived in a household where we taught. Yeah. And I there were books. Education was important. Yeah. That was the, my mother's thing was, you got to go to school. That is your job. <laughs> she said, if you're a C student, I will accept C's. If you're not a C student, if you can do better, I expect better. She never pushed us toward careers. We just knew we had to go to school, that we had to be meaningful contributors, that we had to work and take care of ourselves. Well, once you let it slip in uh, the first and second grade, she wouldn't let you get a C after that, I'm sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> really explaining those C's in conduct. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about your experience at Alabama. Like, where, what did you get your degree in and, and your background there? So my uh, undergraduate degree is in secondary education, social okay. sciences. Um, my deal with my mom was you got to have something that you can use and go straight to work with. This whole thing about professional school, that's fine. You can do that. But if that doesn't work out, I want you to have something to fall back on. That was, you know, that fall back on. And that was so um, uh, I my concentration was in history. And probably had I been able to find a job in high school in Mobile teaching social studies, I never would have gone to law school. Uh -huh. Because I loved it. I did my student teaching at Druid High School. Uh, I taught 12th grade government. Loved every minute of wow. it. When I came, I graduated December of 73, and I came back that fall, I mean that spring, to Mobile looking for a job. And I went, came to Mobile County Public School System. I had an interview, and the person who interviewed me said, we never have vacancies for social studies. We never. Those people come, and those social studies they teachers, they just stay and stay <laughs> and stay. stay. They never have jobs. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. Right. Mm -hmm. So in May of uh, 1974, I went back to Tuscaloosa because I had gotten a job there. And I worked at Ridgecrest Children's Center, which was a center for what at that time was were called emotionally disturbed children. So I was working there trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew mm -hmm. up. <laughs> Felt like I wasn't um, <clears throat> emotionally mature enough to do the law school thing. I had friends in law school. I was not ready to walk away from my life at that point. So I started working for, for Ridgecrest. And so I said, well, if I'm going to be here, at least I should know what I'm doing. So I went back to school. I got a master's in EC. And um, I went I, at Ridgecrest. I started out with young people. Then I was the master teacher mm -hmm. on, uh, on the adolescent unit. I did my uh, student teaching for my master's at Bryce on the adolescent unit at Bryce Hospital. And when I finished all of that, I came back to Mobile. By that time, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to go to law school. So I came back to Mobile. I worked in Mobile as an EC teacher at Burroughs Elementary for a year to save up money to go to law school. I went to law school in 1978. Oh, wow. So what a story because... But, I loved all of it. Yeah, and working in, in with emotionally 
conflicted students. It takes quite a bit of dedication, yeah, quite a bit of commitment. I had a self-contained classroom at Burroughs. Wow. And I think there were only three EC teachers in the whole system at that point. That was 1977. So I had all the kids who would have attended schools on the south end. So Burroughs was a pretty much predominantly black school. Mm-hmm. I had an all-white EC class inside Burroughs wow. Elementary. So, that's so fa- that is fascinating. I'm, I'm curious, you you went in undergrad in education, master's, still focused in with working with children in education. Mm-hmm. What was it that even after you got the job, you still were thinking g- about going into law? Right. What, what was it that attracted you to When did you find your maturity profession? for law school? <laughs> you know, the, the law school thing had been percolating since the fifth grade. Oh. Uh, that was I was paying attention to what was happening in the country. Um, it was the year that um, John Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. It was the year of the bombings in Birmingham, and from everything that I was reading in Ebony Magazine, those the people who were actually out there making a difference, um, not so much the street protests. They were they were the ones who were in the courtroom. That's where the change seemed to be happening. Laws were being changed. And when I thought about, um, I don't know how I understood, but I understood that the real change had to be the law, that that was what was going to be sustainable, then that's when I said I wanted to be a part of that. that. That's what I want to do. And when I came back after law school, when I came back here in 1981, um, I just went into a small firm. I'm ready to do that. The law for me was just a tool for uh, for social change. And you you figured that out in fifth grade? <laughs> is that what you said? Well, <laughs> what I <laughs> what impressive. I figured out I was, was gonna say, very impactful, very impressive. The the personalities that I was reading about Thurgood Marshall, Constance Baker mm-hmm. Motley, those people. I mean, they were the lawyers, and the stuff that they were doing, they were going into courts, and schools were getting integrated, and communities were getting integrated. And I knew that that was... You saw um, the change. Right. You saw the change happening. In the I knew the Congress was a part of it, mm-hmm. so I thought at some point that I would explore the political dimension um, of doing the work, but I saw law and politics as being the way to, to accomplish the change that we needed to see. That's wonderful. And and I would say, too, just on a, a side note, I spent a few years working as a, a runner in a law firm. And, and one thing that I noticed, a lot of the attorneys were very interested in history. It was it was kind of uncanny, actually. There was just kind of this mm-hmm. connection. They they loved digging into history. And I think that kind of brought around their interest in in law and digging into old cases and it's sort of a natural kind of a, thing uh, that goes together. I grew up in a family of lawyers and they, uh, they also just history, you, social, so, social justice. Those were the majors. Those, right. Right. Yeah, you were told to major in those things. Now when somebody talks to me and asks me, what should I major in? I tell them English because you're going to do a whole lot of writing. The bar exam is writing. You got to get past that. Briefs are writing. You got to be able to, to communicate in writing to make your case, and um, I mean the politics, you know, political science is fine, history is fine, but at the heart of it is being able to communicate your client's position. And I, I tell them, you need English. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that would work for you I, too, I Joe. I totally get that. Yeah. Yes, I was a English lit major in in undergraduate school, and I, I agree with you. Just the ability to express yourself professionally and eloquently. 
goes a long way regardless of what you end up doing. And there's there's so much reading, excuse me, um, in undergraduate school and when you get to law school. And majoring in English gets you used to having to read 200 pages a night or whatever and being able to synthesize it and right. you know, process that and do the, the comprehension mm-hmm. piece of, of what you read. I, I just think, I, I tell them English, they really kind of look at me like, I don't think so, but... Well, let's hope you, I'm sure you've helped out a lot of aspiring lawyers at that point right now. So you, you get your law degree, you come back to Mobile, mm-hmm. and what do you do from, from that point? You spend some time working as an attorney? So I was with um, the small firm that included Michael Figures and Vernon Crawford. There was one other black woman practicing in Mobile when I started in 1981. And um, really, I had planned to come back, and I was going to do all of this civil rights litigation. That, that's what I thought I was going to do. But then reality set in, and I learned that first you got to pay the bills. And so I did. We started, we had a bread and butter practice. We did a lot of whatever, came, you know, whatever walked in the door. That's what we did for the most part. But um, because of our uh, stature in the community, we would there were just very few options. We also got the police brutality cases. We got the um, employment discrimination, housing discrimination. So we got to do a lot of that, but not um, not like I originally thought. The other thing that I learned, and it was uh, kind of, I go back to the day that I was sworn in the bar. One of the things that I had to swear to was to uphold the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the state of Alabama. And when I said that, I knew that there were things, particularly in the Constitution of Alabama, with which I did not agree. And I'm like, I'm taking an oath. I said, but I got to say this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I can't even, I can't play unless I pass this place. And so we spent a lot of our time looking at um, what was there that really wasn't fair. And, and we still, even now, almost 40 years later, I, I, let's see, I got my, I will have been practicing 39 years come October, come September. And we are still having conversations about the Constitution of Alabama. Discriminatory language in the Constitution was still there. But um, anyway. But so this placed you in a position to be able to make that impact, even though right. it wasn't the impact you thought. Right. And it, it's it still kinda, an impact. And the other thing that was shifting um, courts were interpreting the civil rights laws that had been passed, 1964, 1965, 1972. All of those were, and they were in flux. And so some of what might have been a good case in 1975, by 1981, the state of the law was such that it was more, they had changed the standard of proof. Um, it was harder to prove a case. You know, all of those things had evolved in that time. So it made the, the work that I thought I was going to be doing, I just did not realize how difficult it, be, it was going to become just by operation of the law. Mm-hmm. So, but we continue to do the work. And in, um, in 1992, I left private practice to become the executive director of Legal Services Corporation of Alabama. And it was a statewide nonprofit organization that provides free legal services to low-wealth communities. We had offices in 60 of Alabama's 67 counties. I did that. 
for um, three years, and then I was recruited to come and work for our National Legal Services Office. So I went to D.C., and I worked in D.C. until 1998 with the Legal Services Corporation, the national office, and then I was ready to come home. I came back to Mobile in 1998, and um, I did some, during that time, I did some consulting, I did some adjunct teaching at Bishop State Community College, some at Spring Hill College, trying to figure out, do I really want to go back in, set up an office, and do a full-blown practice? I'm like, I don't know about that. Well, but not somewhere in that process, um, the county commission, which I had represented earlier, decided that it was going to add another in-house lawyer. And so they just asked, would I be willing to come in and be in-house? I had been retained counsel, but in my private practice. So I said, huh, that, that works. So I did that. And so um, started that in December of 99. Fast forward 2005, Sam Jones, I think it was 2005, when Sam Jones was elected mayor of the city of Mobile. His position was available, was vacant. And um, I thought, I said, hmm, I wonder if this is the time for the politics. And I thought about it, I thought about it. And I said, maybe. Well, a big question arose at that point as to whether or not it was whether the governor would appoint his replacement or whether it should be a special election. So the first ruling was, oh, um, it should be an election. So we started an election. It was stopped. Court said, no, it's a gubernatorial appointment. So governor, it was then Bob Riley, Governor Bob Riley appointed Juan Chastain, who was a black Republican, to that seat that it, of the three seats, that's the one that had typically been uh, held by a Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, so in, um, it must have been April of May, of 2007, another court said, no, you were wrong. It was not a gubernatorial appointment. It should be a special election. So by this time, it's like, I'm in. So I ran for election in 2007. Um, the election started in 2007. The full term would have been 2000, which started in 2008. Anyway, I, I ran for election that were like, I don't know, seven or eight candidates. I was the only one, only candidate who had never held elected office before. And I was elected in October of 2007. And I served. And then in May, May or June of 2008, the Supreme Court of the United States says, no, you were wrong. Are you kidding? No, you were wrong. <laughs> it should not have been a special election. Oh, my. It should have been a gubernatorial appointment. So Juan Chastain, who was defeated in the election with me, came back in the office. He stayed um, long enough to get his back pay, and then he resigned, creating another vacancy. Okay, so in April of 2008, it was time to qualify for the 2008 election because I was going to have to run again in 2008. Nobody qualified against me. Nobody qualified as a Republican in 2008. Juan Chastain resigned, so, and um, 
Governor Riley declined to appoint me, even though I was the heir apparent, because nobody had challenged me in 2008. So the, the seat was vacant from September, October, November, until I took over, until I was sworn in for the November 2008 election. My goodness. Yeah, what a, that's a that is a that is a very interesting story. Welcome I, I had to no idea politics. I had no right? idea. Yes, that, that is, is amazing. And and but you were ready. That just even urged you on more. I can tell you were like, I'm not going to let this go. Yeah, it was <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that was. And then now, so now you're a county commissioner and have been for how long is that now? Since well, I was elected October 2007. I always said I was a citizen commissioner for those times that <laughs> when I was out. That's right. But right. I, I usually count from October. I count that election, and then my first full term was November 2008. Okay. So tell us a little bit about. I, I, I'm just I'm loving that so much of your story just goes right along with education. It just follows so that river. It's just it wonderful. Does. So, as a commissioner, what are you able to do? on the education side? Are there are there funds available? Are there things that in your position you're able to do to help? And I think Mobile County is broken up into districts, correct? So yep, you are three. a commissioner of one of the three districts right. in the county. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about from your position what you're able to do with right. regard to education? And to think, I'm, I imagine that that is very high on your priority list with your background. Well, it's, it's high on my priority list because before I was elected, I was, I was uh, in schools. I was going in doing little um, transitions, graduations, um, career days, whatever people needed. And that had started as long as I was a lawyer. I was getting invited. So I was in and out of schools. So when I became a commissioner, I already knew what some of the needs were. It was a, this was not news to me, um, and one of my pet peeves is people who complain about schools but who don't spend any time there. Because when you start, I'm like, okay, when you start complaining about a school, the first question out of the box with me: Have you been inside that school? Have you gone there to find out what they need, and have you done what you can to try to meet those needs for those students? So I knew. So coming in, when I found out that there was a pot of money that we could use that we could direct toward educational purposes, then, um, I mean, that was just right up my alley. So I knew some of those things. So initially, really, I just started reaching out to schools. And then once I did that and the word kind of got out that the county would had some funds that they could use and people started coming to me. So, um, you know, we've done, we're very fortunate. We've been able to do everything from, um, I don't know. Like what types of things we, did the money go towards? We've done libraries, books for libraries. We've done playgrounds. Um, one of the things I found out early on was when they build new schools that they don't build playgrounds. So the first playground project uh, we did was at McDavid Jones. And uh, since then we've done we've done some others. but um, So we've done playgrounds. Language labs, uh, language labs, uh, tech labs. We've bought equipment for like theaters uh, at Lafleur High School. We paid for the courtroom. We had that the um, the whole 
judge's bench, the whole thing. It was built by Department of Corrections, but we pay for that. We've, I mean, we pay for programs. We pay for ACT prep. Um, and we have a lot of flexibility in what we do. Some of my colleagues have done parking lots. Uh, we did a, a resource room at Collins Roads that I'm really, pr- I'm really proud of that one. Um, it's we bought washing machines for schools that had large homeless populations. So we have we have some flexibility, and sometimes we can get uh, resources to a problem a little quicker. We can we're a little more agile sometimes than the the system than other resources. Right in, right. Ter- in terms mm-hmm. of how we can get some things. Out. I you know we bought choir robes, keyboards. Um, String instruments, for example, for Citronelle High School. Um, Those are some really amazing things to be putting back into the school, uh, you know, because you don't think about all of those little things that cannot be funded. Yeah. And do you ever get a chance to go back and and just kind of visit those things, like the resource room at Collins Rose? Yeah. I I I get invi- invited, you know. I just kind of check in to make sure that there, there are no new needs because you know you do one thing, but there's always something else. And a lot of the schools in my districts don't have uh, active uh, PTA. Some schools have PTAs that are like they're like fundraising engines. I mean, they can really do it, but that's not the case in a lot of my schools. And so, so uh, rather than having uh, staff having to do all of these May Days and spring festivals mm-hmm. and all of that kind of, that is so labor intensive and you don't make the money you need to make. Uh, I try to help them with, with the big things. Sometimes we may have to break it down into two fiscal years mm-hmm. and get some things done. We've I done know some, that that's much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, so Share with us what uh, Dr. Joe's camp Tell us a little bit about that, that you, uh, I think you had something to do with that. So I'm just, I was just really excited um, when he approached me about doing the, the video camps. That's one of those things that I don't know how to do, but I know that that is now a thing. And it was, it was just exciting to me that to see these, these young kids being able to get in that early on, because I see with them, you know, our future documentarians, I mean, for them to be so comfortable with that. And, and, you know, I've seen kids who, young kids who got their start because they knew how to do a video and upload themselves on Facebook. And now, you know, they're famous and making money. So I I understood um, the potential that it had for them. It was not something I could do, but it meant so much to me to be able to support him and the people who were working with him to be able to do it. And that's how I see my role really on the commission, really as a facilitator. Uh, we don't we don't provide services other than roads and bridges. Those are really the we provide uh, services for roads and bridges. We provide an animal shelter, that kind of thing. But these kinds of things we don't do. But we can help the people who do them. We can help facilitate and make that happen. And and that's just a joy. Well, it's it's been such a, a pleasure, and uh, I'm so grateful for what you have been able to do uh, for us with our camp. The kids have absolutely loved it. And it's like you said, you know, the, the focus for the video camp is for teachers and students to see what it would look like to do video production in the classroom as a way to for the kids to demonstrate what they've learned. And it can be done at so many different grade levels in every content area. 
and the kids just have a blast. And you're telling them that being able to have the skills beyond what they could show in the classroom to begin telling their own stories and telling the stories of their families, documenting that history, like you said. We, We had one student last summer, he finished with the camp, and on Sunday, when he went to church, he went right up to the guy that does the, the video at the, at the church and said, hey, I'm, I need to help you because, and this boy is so young, and he said, I need to help you. I know how to do this stuff now. And the guy was like, really? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I'm, I can help you with videotaping the you know, church. And he said, all right, well, come on. And the kid just knew what he was doing. The man was just blown away by it. So it just wow. immediately he went out and was able to start doing something productive. It's in an the extremely impressive camp. I, I was honored enough to, to get to volunteer with you last year and work with it. And the teachers learn so much. I mean, it's an intensive training for the teachers, but it's also just something for those kids. They just absolutely love putting those movies together and oh, yeah. sets. And that's right. And it was integrated with literature. And I'm just so sad that you're not able to do it this summer. But well, we're we're going to come back. Uh, this this <laughs> pandemic will eventually go away, and yeah. we'll be able to to get, get back in the back. swing of things mm-hmm. with with video production. What I one of the, I, I guess another thing that it spoke to my need for children to have success experiences. And one of the things that um, has bothered me when I grew up, you know, you could be in choir. You didn't have to be an A or B student, but you could have choir or you had band or you had the arts. You had those kinds of, and you had an opportunity to to shine even if you weren't going to be the valedictorian or whatever and so any opportunities that we can make what i kind of these kind of equal opportunities success success stories you don't have to be an a student to be in a in a video camp i mean you can come in and learn how to do that because some people that's the way they learn they learn by doing then they're never they, they aren't going to get it from the book, but if they can, you can show them how to do it hands-on. And so it created another opportunity, as I saw it, for them to say, hey, I'm successful. I can do this. That's right. So true. So thinking about uh, the future and uh, tying into our, our title of Next in Ed, in, in your role, what do you see coming or what would you like to see coming down the line? So much has changed in the last few months with the way we've had to think about education and do you see that permanently changing the way we look at things or maybe the way in your position of how you'll have to approach things or? Well, I I think it's permanently changing. Um, I'd never done Zoom pre-pandemic. I'd never done Microsoft Teams and I don't know what those other things are, but I mean, (laughs) you had a learning curve of your your own. I have all kinds. I didn't, I didn't have a, a camera on on my monitor i have a camera on my monitor now and i have headphones and all of that stuff and we are uh, some of the uh, uh, our national association of counties convention is canceled we were to meet in orlando in july but we are doing we are doing our annual meeting virtually we're doing the election. I'm the reading clerk for our national election and all of that is going to be done done virtually uh, we have software. People are going to be able to vote from all over the country and the territories. It, it's it's um, in, well, not the territories, including Hawaii and Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawaii and Alaska will be participating. All of them be virtually. So when I when I see that, and as I've seen the the ease with which we've made some of these shifts, 
somebody's going to say, hmm, this was easy. This was easier than X, fill in whatever the X is. And so that's why I think that we're going to see a shift. And one of the things that, that I'm very concerned about is that we have a number of students who aren't ready. Um, we have a summer internship program, and um, we have some. We having to do. We do like a week and a half of training before they go to their placement, and we having to do it virtually this year. Well, I have some interns that I'm about to lose. These are college students that I'm about to lose because they don't have what they need to have at home to be able to participate in a virtual training. So this morning I spent my time trying to find a place with a, uh, a technology lab that could accommodate them social distancing so they could get to training and then go on their job where they can earn some money before they go back to college. I'm saying these are, these are college students and we watched what happened when we shifted to online. So I, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Uh, we're doing our vacation Bible school at my church with Google Classroom. And so um, we the reality is now we know that every child is not does not have what they need at home, whether it's the Internet connectivity, whether it's um, the devices. So I see a lot more of those kind of requests. I We did... A, la- a technology lab at um, at Viger High School, and they could lend them they iPads. They they could mm-hmm. ch- you could check them out. I see more and more requests coming like that, and so um, I think one of our challenges is going to be getting our kids ready, but also talking to parents about kind of shifting your focus. We we really are going to need you to kind of step up your game, and when you don't have a, a an active PTA is become it's going to become even more of a challenge, and p- there are some parents who won't be able to. I mean, just just won't have the money to do it. We have uh, what six seven hundred homeless kids. We know that they won't. So we've we've got to we've got to prepare ourselves for that. So I see that as being one of the challenges. And while that is happening, um, I think we're becoming more and more global. And to talk about becoming global when at a fundamental level we can't um, access these technical, technological resources now, we, we, aren't, we aren't there yet. I was at the, um, the groundbreaking for the Martin Academy, uh, Academy of Global Learning, I think is what it was called, and it was a public-private partnership. When I think about what's next, um, there's public money there, but there's also private money. And, you know, what I'm thinking is maybe that's going to be one of our models. Our community contributes to our school system. We are, we are very fortunate to be one of the counties where we have more than just the state money. We have actual local money that's coming here. But I just don't, I'm not sure that that's keeping pace with the needs. And so if it's not keeping pace, and right now the community, I don't know whether the community has an appetite to pay any more. Maybe we got, maybe those public-private partnerships within our public schools may be something to look, a model that we can look at and maybe replicate in some other places and, and take a school with a lot of promise and, right. and make uh, more significant private investments in it. If we can do it, if we can, I think Martin is going to be a good model for us to look at 
um, and draw from. Oh, well, that's that's a fascinating idea to continue that for at a smaller level. It doesn't have to be this the huge right. global school Barton Academy, but we could do it at a school with the with the needs. Right. It doesn't have to be a fourteen million dollar. You know, we have some good models. We have some partners in education who, if they pull out of some of our schools, we'd be in trouble. I mean, who do some, uh, the relationship, for example, between Mike David Johnson, I think it's, um, it's one of the chemical companies. I just blanked on it. But they've been together through all the iterations, all the name changes of that school. They've been together 30, maybe maybe 30 years and they have made a difference. In fact, sometimes I just call and say, well, do y'all need anything? And they say, oh, no, our part, we needed X, right. but our partner in education has gotten it for us. And that's, um, I think that partner in education model is really maybe a forerunner to the kind of engagement that, that we're talking about. Um, and, and what I have found is if when you go to industry and say, industry, this is what we need you to do, that they have their they, that they can respond to that when we are clear when we can clearly articulate what those needs are. I think that's an important point to be able to articulate those needs. Mm-hmm. I just I'm just fascinated by your story and by your passion, and for all that you've done for education for our county, and, and the schools in your district. Yeah, I was thinking if if I had to sum this up in one word, it would be advocacy. You, uh, it sounds like your passionate entire advocacy. career. <laughs> whether you were teaching uh, or wanting to teach social studies or whether you were working with EC kids and practicing law and now in your position as a commissioner, just thank you for everything that you've, that you've done. And I hope that you'll consider coming back one day down the line and talking to us again. I'd love to see maybe these ideas that you've had of what's coming or what maybe should come to touch base with you and see if any of that's come to fruition. Well, I'd be happy to. This is, uh, that's how I see myself in my role. And, uh, you know, one of the, when I was making a decision about whether to run, one of the things it gave me, I said, I'm going to be saying the same things I've been saying for the last however many years, but now it gives me a platform. It's really amazing when you go from being non-elected to elected, it's almost the community, it's almost as if what you say suddenly becomes golden. But I'm, I'm saying the same things I've always said. And so when you have um, that, that opportunity, mm-hmm. I think you really just have to be really responsible in how, do you, how you use it and make sure that you can um, maximize it. And that's true leadership. That's just true leadership. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner Ludgood. Yes, thank you for taking time. It was an honor speaking with you today. Talking with us. And for those of you listening, please be sure to join us next time as we continue to explore what's what's next next in in Ed. Don't forget to subscribe. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find us. The Next in Ed podcast is brought to you by the Mobile County Public Schools IT Department in partnership with the Department of Counseling and Instructional Sciences at the University of South Alabama. Engineered by Tim VP Media Production. Music by Justin Matthews. Hosted by Dr. Joe Gaston and Julie Neidhart. Follow us on Twitter at NextInEd and on Facebook. Guests on the podcast are expressing personal opinions for informational purposes only. 
They are not necessarily acting as official representatives for their schools, universities, organizations, or places of employment. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.